And you can be missing the good times. You can miss the bad times too. This is KTOO News Juno at 104.3 FM. The following is a broadcast of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event. The seven personal stories you are about to hear were told at the Northern Light United Church on March 10th, 2020. The theme was Left Behind. Co-hosts for the evening were Alita Bus and Jeff Smith. The profit recipient for the event was Juno Alaska Music Matters. They provided the live music, which included fiddle tunes featuring Glacier Valley Jam Students and the string band Super Bear. Each day I'm gonna die just a little bit more. This bourgeoisie society is slowly killing me. Our first storyteller tonight is Carmen Lowry. Born in western Kentucky, Carmen grew up in a rural area of farming communities. She and Mark, her spouse for 25 years, hold a 125-acre farm in Pilot Oak, Kentucky, where they have planted over 5,000 trees and 80 acres of native grasses and forbs in efforts to create a better ecology for Kentucky songbirds, endangered darter fish, bobwhite quail, and to Carmen's delight, the sweet little bunnies. Please welcome Carmen. When I realized that the theme of these stories was left behind, well, I knew that I had to tell all of you about Bunny. Bunny was a cozy, cuddly, little green stuffed bunny, and Bunny would lay right here and drape on my shoulder. And I would hug Bunny, and we'd sing songs together, talk about this and that. And all, I don't remember how Bunny came into my life. But Bunny has always been in my recollection and in my memories. And this recollection in particular with Bunny occurred over 50 years ago in Western Kentucky and Tennessee, right on the state line. And it was in the spring, early spring of 1967 and I was three years old. And there was a horrible storm raging all around us, winds just blowing. And my auntie, whom I adore, and my uncle drove me from my grandparents' house in Pilot Oak, Kentucky, being Alleen's, three miles down 129 South toward my great-grandmother's house, Memaw, in Dukedom, Tennessee while I was spending the night with them. And when my auntie and uncle got ready to leave, I realized that I had left Bunny behind. Oh, I wept and I wailed and I flung and I flailed and I was inconsolable. But my auntie, she took great pity on me and she said, don't cry, little one. I will go to Kentucky to get your bunny. And she did, and brought Bunny back, and I welcomed Bunny 
with open arms, and I was so comforted. Now, when I told that story to myself, I thought, there's some gaps in that story, namely, where is my mother? So I called my mom, and I told her everything that I just told you. To which she replied, I don't know about that. <laughs> but I do know about Bunny's demise. And you should call your aunt. She'd be really happy to know you have such a wonderful memory of her. So I complied. I called my auntie down in Alabama. Now I told her everything that I just told you. To which she replied, hang on, and consulted with my uncle. She came back and said, and I heard, you know, I bet this was the time that you and your mother and your two brothers moved in to Mima's house while your dad moved to Memphis to drive a truck, and he was going to set up a house for you. And she continued to speak. I didn't hear her. Then I heard her back in my ear saying, you know, I bet we didn't even go get that bunny for you. I bet I called your mom and dad and said, bring it out when you come. Anyway, she concluded, I don't know about that. But I do know about Bunny's demise. <laughs> so I reflected on all this new information that I had heard, and I realized I couldn't believe that I didn't remember that my family was going through this huge transition. Like maybe I was sad because of, I was leaving my father behind. And maybe my father was sad because he was leaving me behind. And maybe his father and mother were sad because their only child and their only grandchildren were going to leave them behind. And maybe my mother was perturbed because she had to move back into her grandmother's house with three little kids. Oh. Maybe there was a lot more being left behind than just Bunny. So I thought about that, and I replied to myself, hmm, I don't know about that. <laughs> but indeed, I know about Bunny's demise. Epilogue. <laughs> Bunny's demise. Now, it was in the summer following that incident when Bunny and myself and all of my mother's family all decided that we would go to Real Foot Lake for what I can only surmise was a going away party as we moved to Memphis. And oh my goodness, we had such a good time at that Real Foot Lake. We went picnicking and we played cards and while we made stories on that day that we still tell to this day. Well, it was time to go, and so Bunny and I decided we needed to head over to the pit latrine 
to take care of some business. So we went in there and I took care of some business, reached down to pick up Bunny and <gasps> Bunny fell down in the pit latrine. And everything was suspended because I knew at that very moment that no matter how much those people out there loved me, <laughs> no one in my mother's family was gonna go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> hmm. So I turned around and I squared my little shoulders. I kicked open that door. I stepped out, took a deep breath, and I left Bunny behind. <laughs> Thank you. Our next storyteller is Laverne Byer. Laverne Byer retired from Alaska Department of Fish and Game in 2016 after a 43-year career of learning the power of drugs and capturing a variety of wildlife for research projects that inhabit the Tongass, like Sitka black-tailed deer, wolves, wolverine, elk, and black bears. This includes capturing mountain goats in Tracy and Endicott Arms in 1989 and reintroducing them to Mount Juneau. Laverne is primarily known as a brown bear expert in the Tongass for 35 years, capturing and literally hugging over 1,000 bears. Please welcome Laverne to the stage. Fresh out of high school, for a few years, I was trapping partners with the a Ketchikan legend named Bruce Johnstone. We trapped primarily beaver on the Eunuch River. Now the Eunuch River is a transboundary river with several, several tributaries located in Misty Fjords National Monument, 65 miles from Ketchikan. In those years, we'd be out for a couple months without seeing another person. Now Bruce, he grew up in Misty Fjords. He was born in 1909. His, between 1917 and the 1940s, the John Stone family of nine had three homesteads in Misty. Whenever they'd see smoke within five miles, they'd pick up and carve another homestead. Now in June of 1935, while Bruce was prospecting on the Eunuch River, he killed a famous brown bear of the era that had stalked him, known as Old Groner, or Moaning Marauder of Cripple Creek. Now, Old Groner had 17 bullet holes in his skull from encountering a prospector from years earlier. Old Groner's skull has been in the Ketchikan Museum since 1936. Now, in October, of 1958, while duck hunting at the mouth of the Eunuch River, Bruce survived the attack of three brown bears at one time. The unusual combination of a boar, sow, and a cub. 
May, May 9th, 1973, Bruce and I were in a little eight by 12 trapper's cabin on Lake Creek, a tributary between Cripple Creek and the mouth. On this day, Bruce's peptic ulcer had flared up, so he's bedridden. I take off with our canoe to go exploring. Late that evening, I find myself hunkered down, a couple miles down the river, hunkered down alongside a beaver pond, armed with a 22 and our beater 338 rifle. Earlier in the day, I had set a couple beaver traps at this pond. So within just a couple minutes, up pops two beavers. And one of them immediately spies one of my traps, swims into it, and swoosh, swoosh, you know, the beaver drowns. And I thought, wow, that's quick. I'd never seen a beaver get caught before. Meanwhile, his buddy's there with a stick in its mouth, swimming across the pond. Well, I take the 22, and I'm pointing at him. I'm going to plink this beaver. Meanwhile, behind me, I hear this loud stick crack. And I'm thinking, well, I didn't want to give up my position to that beaver. But on my hike into that pond, I'd cross a couple moose tracks, and I crossed a couple big brown bear tracks, and I didn't want either one of them close to me, so I better turn to look. So when I turned, here is this huge bear that, with his nose to the ground, in my boot tracks, following my boot tracks, and he's gonna walk right up to me. So okay, I grabbed my 338, stand up, said, hey bear. And it was just like that. He raises his head. It's like he had a big smile on his face, like, there's dinner. And he bolted immediately. But that, that point in my life, I didn't want to kill a bear. And I knew about bluff chargers. And between us, is just there's just sand, and just a little trickle of water that was feeding this, this pond. That, was my, that immediately became my demarcation lines. It was about 20 yards away. So I thought, OK. If he hits that stream, I'm going to start shooting. He never missed a beat. You know, so when I, and it was really, really flat, fast, but in slow motion, I can still see the droplets going. So when I aim, all I could see was head in, in the scope of my rifle. So when I shot, he just shook his head and put his paws up there. I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm missing him. I'm going to have to let him get closer. You know, so then I shoot again, and he starts spinning towards me. And then I shoot again, and he's like spinning, but he's trying, still trying to keep track of me. And then I shoot again, and he finally goes down, and he's kind of biting at, the, biting at the sand. I'm on the verge of tears. He scared the crap out of me. Plus, at that point in my life, I thought I killed an endangered species. And I only had two bullets left to get back to the canoe. So when I get back to the canoe, here comes Bruce rolling down the river. He had skin and knives. He had an axe. He had his 44. So I heard the shooting down here. It sounded like a machine gun. It's either four wolves or one brown bear. We make our way back to the bear. And when Bruce sees the bear, he said, man, don't have much of a hide, but man, what a head. Looked like old Groner's grandson. <laughs> Later on, when the bear was aged, the bear and I were the same age. 
in, two, in August of 2006, while, while I was up on Cripple Creek capturing brown bears for research, Bruce passed away in Ketchikan at the age of 97. Bruce left behind his legacy with me. Our next storyteller, Michael Dale Budikoffer II, is a 45-year-old father of five and a civil engineer working for Hecla Greens Creek Mining Company. He has worked for Greens Creek and lived in Juneau for 10 years. His favorite thing to do in his spare time is to hike in the beautiful Juneau wilderness. He is currently learning to play the piano, and his faith in God is central to his life. He's originally from southeast Idaho, just north of Utah, where he grew up around farming and logging industries. Please welcome Michael. I'm the oldest child of five. I have uh, two sisters and two brothers. I grew up going to church every week. Uh, it was a very important part of my life. Um, when I was a child, I used to sing songs at church, like, I hope they call me on a mission, which goes like this. I hope they call me on a mission when I have grown a foot or two. By then, I think that I'll be ready to preach and teach and work as missionaries do. So as I grew up, I, uh, life was tough for me. Um, I always had church. That was good. But um, but. Family life was pretty difficult a lot of the time, um, and we moved from place to place. Uh, I never got settled in any one place, so I was pretty lonely a lot of the time. Um, and then when I was around 11, my, my uh, baby sister passed away, and then um, not too long after that, my parents were divorced, and uh, life was pretty tough. And right there in my, um, with, in my little 11-year-old 11, 11 head, I decided that, um, that I was never going to be divorced and that I was going to take good care of my family. And, um, and I always strived to do the right things growing up, um, including going to church. I was baptized when I was eight, and, I, I, um, and then I went and uh, joined the Marine Corps after high school to get out of town, and uh, the Marine Corps Reserve, that is, and, uh, and went through that training, and I wondered if that was the right thing to do. <laughs> and, uh, but, it, but it was good, and I, um, I learned a lot about who I was, and I got closer to God, if anything, and then uh, was ready to serve a mission. And when I got home from training, I did that. I served a two-year mission and, uh, and learned even more about myself, and um, it was a good experience. When I got home from that, I went to Ricks College in Rexburg, Idaho, and, and, uh, and studied there. And then I uh, met my wife there. Um, we got married, and we started a family right away, um, which I always thought was a good thing to do. And then... We had five children, um, and those were the best times of our marriages when our children were born. Um, we had um, very good experiences there, but uh, but man, our marriage was tough. We um, we we never did get along all that great, to be honest, and um, and um, it was hard. But we stuck through it because we knew that that was the right thing to do. Well. In uh, 2008, my wife got run over by a car in Anchorage. Um, she was on a bicycle, and uh, it was pretty rough. And uh, that even put more strain on our on our troubled marriage. And uh, unfortunately, and uh, 
then we separated in 2010. But we were able to work it out. We got back together, and, uh, and then we decided to start over, and we wanted to go someplace with water. So, so Juno made most sense, since there were actually jobs here. And, uh, and I got hired on with Greens Creek, and then uh, we, we moved here. But uh, that did not help our marriage. It probably made it worse. <laughs> she wasn't a big fan of Juno, with the, how dark it was all the time, and how cold it was, and rainy. Um, she ended up going back to Anchorage to sell the house with the family, and uh, and then and then we ended up going to Florida after that. We were there for four years, and that made the marriage even harder. But uh, um, <laughs> but uh, I made it down there quite often, about 100 days a year, and uh, and then in 2013 I got in a really nasty wreck in front of Fred Meyer, um, and we uh, and that kind of drew us together for a while. Um, I spent a lot of time together while I recovered, and then, uh, and then after I recovered and got back here to Juno, things fell apart hardcore. We didn't even weren't even talking to each other. And then in, in the beginning of 2014, she had a, a massive liver failure all of a sudden, and uh, and uh, ended up getting a liver transplant down there in Florida. And uh, that was one of the most spiritual times in my life, and what quite an amazing time. Of, some real miracles happened, and, uh, and our marriage was good for a while, but unfortunately, it just, we couldn't, we couldn't, uh, couldn't make it work, and uh, ultimately, we ended up back here in Juneau in 2015, um, and, uh, and tried to make it work, well, um, in 2016, July 2016, we separated, this time for good, and, um, and I filed for divorce in 2000 and December um, 2018. And, um, and then anyway, that was a hard part of my life and broke my heart. And that was something that I had always committed I wasn't gonna do, but, but it was the right thing to do, unfortunately. Um, I've made it through that though, um, by, by staying close to God, being active in my church, active in the community, family promise, I've done that. I've played the piano um, and, um, and I've, I have a good group of friends that are really important to me. And my children love me, and they care for me. I've always paid my child support faithfully, and um, I've worked hard and to be at this point where I am. And I am in such a good place, such a good place. I thought I was left behind, but I really was not. Um, and uh, I know that life can be good for anybody that tries to live on the positive side of life and, and that, that can look for good things in life. Um, and I, I, I've been able to show that. And so, so after, after 45 years of being called Dale, I recently decided to, to start going by Michael, which I really like. And my, my dad, like I said, I was named after my, or my, I was named after my father, and uh, he passed away about three years ago. And uh, so his memory lives with me, and I, and I am striving to, to live a good life. Thank you. Our next speaker is Brett Mello. Since leaving the corn and soy of his Midwest hometown behind, Brett has followed his passion for outdoor guiding to all corners of the United States, moving cross country every six months for the last five years. He arrived in Juneau in 2018, expecting to leave after one season, but here he is two years later, wondering what happened. 
Please welcome Brett. So about three years ago, I joined the crew of the tall ship Rovesway. Now I can't see most of you, but how many of you know what a tall ship is? That's excellent. It's a pretty niche thing, but what should I expect for a town like Juneau? So tall ships, for those of you who don't know, are traditionally rigged sailing vessels. And uh, the boat I worked on, Roseway, was one of those tall ships. Roseway was built about 90 years ago as a fishing vessel. So she was meant to go fast and work hard. Now, 90 years later, she's not fishing anymore, but she's still working hard. Instead of going out to catch fish, she's actually taking kids out, and the crew on board are teaching those kids how to handle sail, how to command deck, how to take care of their own environment like you do on a ship. And Roseway, still working hard, she is on the East Coast all summer long, but in wintertime, she's not hauled out and worked on all winter long. She actually sails down. Her crew brings her down past Florida, past Cuba, all the way to the U.S. Virgin Islands. Now, I think I made the right choice in joining when they went to the Virgin Islands. That, as I was flying in and looking down over the turquoise waters, knowing that that boat was there waiting for me, I was so excited. I have this masochistic sense of pleasure of uh, just that I found sailing would probably work really well for. I was very excited to, to swab the deck, and this is an old wooden boat, so you have to swab the deck, and crawl around in dirty bilges and stand watch for hours in the pouring rain. That sounded really exciting to me. Unfortunately, one thing gave me a lot of anxiety is teaching teaching kids. There was, I mean, teaching kids or just large groups of kids can cause anxiety for anyone. But for me, I was so worried about teaching because my whole life I thought I was the worst student. Growing up in school, I had the hardest time even paying attention. I tried and tried and tried looking around at all the kids who could raise their hand and understand what was going on and see the numbers on the board and know what was going on, I made it through. But I couldn't ever study. My grades were okay, but I just went inside and I didn't really go out and I never really did anything until I got out of school. But when it came time for my first day to teach kids, I mean, that masochistic sense of, of pleasure, you just have to dive into things that terrify you. So, to give you an idea of how her programmings work, so we would sail up to the dock, and this is about a 130-foot tall ship. She's it's a pretty big boat. And we'd pull up to the dock, and we'd get an equally large group of kids. These were anywhere from 9 to 15 years old. They were usually at-risk, underserved youth. So... To say they're rambunctious is an understatement. You could usually hear them coming before they actually turn the corner on the dock. So the first thing we do with this large group of students in this really big boat is we raise sail. As soon as we come off the dock, 
we start hauling up all of Roseway's sail, and she has plenty to offer. Her mainsail weighs about 3,000 pounds. Fully uh, hauled up, her mainsail is about as tall as this church that we're sitting in right now. And I suggest you do Google this boat, or any tall ship. I really love tall ships. Anyway, so in order to do that, there's no electric motors on board. It's just us, these kids and the crew, and so we all line up, 15 of us on each side for one sail, hauling away on these ropes for about five minutes, usually to a sea song that my friend Ava would prepare. And eventually, when all the kids are screaming and they're just finally tugged out and they see this mainsail all the way pulled up, we make it and we cheer, you guys did it, good job. And the kids cheer like, yeah. And then we say, only three more to go. <laughs> now, of course, the other sails are smaller. And those go up pretty easy. And are, it's all a ton of fun. The kids are really getting it now. But once we have everything raised, and we're just seeing the wind billow through the sails, it's time to break apart into smaller groups and start our lessons. So. Lots of different lessons on board, but I taught marine biology and physics. These were things that I had a deep passion for that learning, finally, wasn't very difficult for. But I was still really worried about teaching. And within a minute of having these kids and talking to them, all of that anxiety and fear melted away. Because I realized that we weren't in a classroom. We weren't sitting under fluorescent lights, looking at textbooks, memorizing vocabulary words. We were sitting under the Caribbean sun, running across the deck of this 90-year-old boat, learning the value and name of each and every line, learning the art of sail that's 1,000 or 2,000 years old, learning about all these different cultures of how sailing came to be could talk about coral reefs without looking at a textbook. You could just dive in the water with these kids and point out all the fish. And every time I could see a kid's eyes light up, you could, whenever you teach, you can see that passion light up in their eyes when they finally get it. Every time I see that, it's a reminder to me that I wasn't left behind. I was just in the wrong classroom. Thank you. You're listening to Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event on KTOO Juno at 104.3 FM. These stories were told on March 11, 2020 at Northern Light United Church. The theme was Left Behind. Because of the coronavirus health emergency, it was our last show of the season. As we practice social distancing and spend more time at home during the weeks to come, one of the many ways to stay connected with some of your friends and co-workers might be to listen to their stories on our archives at mudrooms.org.
Our next storyteller is Jane Ginter. Jane and Jay arrived in Juneau in 1985 when she was pregnant with their first child. They raised Jason and Sarah in Juneau, and Jane became a volunteer extraordinaire. She ran the AFS Exchange Student Program, taught Sunday school right here at Northern Light, and took her Girl Scout troop hiking over the Chilkoot Trail. Life changed dramatically when they left Juneau in 2011 to trade in their 30-foot sailboat and pick up a 19-foot camper van. She didn't realize she was going to be left behind when then and then discover a world with birds, binoculars, and Bob. Please welcome Jane Ginter. I'm going to graduate school at University of British Columbia in Vancouver. I live downtown near Stanley Park, and I walk around Lost Lagoon just about every day. Now, I know what a mallard looks like, but I see a duck there at Lost Lagoon that doesn't really look like a mallard. I'm not sure what it is. So I go down to the library and check out a bird book. It turns out the book that I'm, the bird that I'm looking at is an American widgeon. And I look around and I notice that there's other birds too. There's a pintail and there's a canvas back and there's a wood duck. But the first bird, my first bird that I've identified on my own is an American widgeon. I'm using an old pair of Bushnell binoculars that my dad picked up at a garage sale many years before. It'd be nice to have a good pair of binoculars, but these will do for now. I finish up at UBC, and I move to California, where I take my very first job as a fisheries economist. I'm still interested in birds, and I spend the springtime weekends out at Anza Borrego, taking a look at the birds. I observe war, uh, migrating warblers. There's a McGilvery's warbler. There's a hermit warbler. There's a Townsend's warbler. And I notice with my binoculars way up in the sky, I notice two golden eagles that are flying by. And as I'm watching in my binoculars, one of those golden eagles swoops down and grabs a jackrabbit right before my very eyes. I'm working now and I think maybe I should buy myself a new pair of binoculars. But I start thinking, I kind of want to wait for a special occasion to get some new binocs. I meet Jay and we end up moving to Juneau, Alaska. My very first day in Juneau, the first bird I see is a American Dipper in Gold Creek by the Federal Building. I join Audubon Society and do the Saturday springtime walks where we notice birds. And I learn that there are two kinds of kinglets that I can see. There's a black-bellied plover. There's even a ruff. These are beautiful birds, and I think, gee whiz, it'd be nice to have a new pair of binoculars, but now I'm raising kids in Juneau, and I can't really justify buying some. 
So we raise uh, Jason and Sarah here in Juneau, and they end up going off to college. And all of a sudden, Jay isn't feeling very well. He's losing some of his stamina. Turns out he has lymphoma. We spend the next three years going back and forth between Seattle and Juneau doing cancer treatment. We get to the point where we think Jay's healthy enough to maybe spend some time visiting friends and family in the lower 48. So we fly down to Houston, Texas and buy a brand new 19-foot road trek camper van. We spend four nights camping across uh, the East Coast. And when we get to the East Coast, Jay is not feeling all that great. He ends up with pneumonia. And exactly one month after we purchased the camper van, he dies. What am I going to do now? I am left behind. I start to think maybe they've got birding festivals. So I Google birding festivals, and sure enough, there are birding events all across the United States. Now might be the time that I can treat myself to a new pair of binoculars. So I do some research, and I decide on Swarovski binoculars, which I've identified as the best quality pair of binoculars that I can buy. So I spend the next three years uh, traveling around the United States in my camper van, going birding. And uh, I do a little bit of traveling internationally as well, and some time in Juneau. But when I get back to Juneau, I realize I'm a little lonely. I wouldn't mind a new, uh, to have a partner in life. So I decide to join Match.com. Now, when you join Match.com, you have to present some photos. And so I put in a photo with me and my camper van. And I also put in a photo of some lemon meringue pies that I've baked. <laughs> but it turns out that the photo that Bob Coghill noticed was me birding in Anzabrago Desert with my brand new binoculars. Bob says, man, those are some nice binoculars. <laughs> it turns out that we have a lot in common. We, uh, he's actually a better birder than I am. We both like opera. We're both churchgoers. We've been together six years now, and we just celebrated our first year of marriage. <laughs> it turns out I thought that I was going to be left behind, but then I discovered the world of birds, binoculars, and Bob. Thank you. Um, our next storyteller is Craig Millard. Craig was born and raised in Juneau. After graduating from UAF in 2011, he returned to Juneau to begin his career in IT consulting. More recently, Craig has returned from abroad after nearly three years down under. Please welcome Craig to the stage. Thank you. 
So I moved to Australia three years ago. I knew I wanted to stay for a bit. I moved over on a work holiday visa. That's a one-year visa. You can work six months for any employer, but I used it as kind of a bridging visa to get long-term employment. It was tough finding a job um, to get four-year sponsorship. Four-year sponsorship leads to residency uh, and eventually citizenship if you want it. So it probably took me 30 applications, 20 cold calls with recruiters, but eventually within one week, I got two job offers with a, a four-year visa. I took one of those offers, obviously, um, since I've been away for a while. And it was about a year later, this was doing IT consulting, it's about a year later that they sent me to the mines. My partner at the time, he told me, Craig, you're going to meet some real Aussie blokes in those mines, which made me pretty nervous. Uh, so I lived in Melbourne, uh, but it was a four and a half hour flight to Perth and then an hour and a half charter flight. So I fly to Perth, no issues. Um, I get to the airport on time and everybody else is in there high visibility clothing and steel cap boots, and I am not. Get on the plane, land, and I'm feeling very, very anxious because everything seems like a big deal when you're on a work visa. As a citizen here, I get fired. Uh, it is a big deal. I have to go find another job, but I don't have to leave the country. So every tiny little thing sounds to me in my mind like, go back to America. <laughs> so I get off the plane, I'm not in the correct uniform. I notice there's a line to the right and some buses ahead of me. I call David and he says, get on the number one bus to the offices. Now in this mine, it's red outback soil and everything is five miles away from everything. So you have the airport, you have the mine itself, the offices where you work at and the mess hall and, and sleeping arrangements. So I get on the bus after calling David, I show up, and he sees that I'm not in my proper attire. He says, you need to go get dressed. Um, and he scowls a little bit. He's a, an English guy who's been in Australia so long that he sounds Australian. I come back dressed in my shiny, absolutely pristine high visibility clothing and new boots. He looks me up and down and says, well, it looks like your mom dressed ya. <laughs> and before he does me a solid, uh, the, the line, the other line getting off the plane was the lunch line. So another thing I'd done is I'd forgotten my lunch. So he takes pity on me. He says, well, we'll go and get you uh, some lunch here, uh, but you got to sign this this waiver first, it was about 20 pages. One number I made sure to memorize was the number for the designated snake handler. <laughs> so we go and get my lunch and then we start a 12 hour shift, which is not a typical IT shift, usually about eight hours. Um, and, and from that point on, I was okay. I did my IT work and I was pretty good. I felt like I'd kind of messed up uh, at the beginning and I was really anxious because it was my first year living abroad. And 
the one thing I wanted to make sure is that I got on the airplane out of there. It was a three-day engagement. So at the mess hall, I said to random people, it's a bit like summer camp, you just set down your cafeteria tray. And for me, I'd always be kind of like, hi, I'm from Alaska. <laughs> you, you can always play up a novelty kind of thing. And there aren't too many Alaskans in Australia. Um, so people would generally receive this pretty positively and uh, would say, okay, um, what, what questions do you have? So I really asked them, I, I wanna know, how do I get to the airport tomorrow? Because I don't wanna be left behind. I know uh, you guys aren't gonna pay for it. I don't know if my employer is gonna pay for me to stay here, so I really gotta get out of here on time. And so they say, okay, um, it leaves at 6.30. I go over to the office and they say, the same thing, 6.30. So I slept okay and uh, had a, a good night's sleep. I show up at 6.15 and it left two minutes later. So I'm really glad I wasn't left behind in that instance, but I think about my last year in Australia. I was in Singapore where they give you uh, a little card that says death to drug offenders um, when you enter the country. My Singaporean friend said, Craig, don't go on any dates in Singapore because uh, you can be punished by caning. And I told him I was in an exclusive relationship at the time, but I said, thank you. I was in New Zealand the week before the Christchurch shooting. I had to have a conference rescheduled from Hong Kong, and then there were the fires. But throughout all of this, I wasn't as anxious as I was in that mine. And it's just because you become emotionally drained from being afraid. And working in that mine and not getting left behind was the first step for me of letting go of my fear. Thank you. Our final storyteller tonight is Tori Talley. Tori is a boat captain born and raised in Alaska. She spent the past winter following the whales, living in Hawaii, but is excited to be back home. Please welcome Tori. The first time I was left behind, I was six months old. It was Valentine's Day in 1996, and my biological father had had a little bit too much wine. He decided to take a snow machine out on the lake that day, but the ice wasn't thick enough. And I'm from a town of 35 people, so it's pretty easy to go unnoticed. And by the time he was found, it was too late. Not too long ago, I was talking to my counselor, and she had asked me to tell, me, tell her about my childhood. And I told her what I had just told you. She just smiled and nodded for me to go on. So I said, when my biological father died, it was just me and my biological mother. Now that was not the best, because my biological mother could barely take care of herself, let alone a baby, especially all alone. My biological mother had a lot of issues. She was battling depression. She had a lot of drug and alcohol addiction and a lot of her own past traumas. 
So my childhood was not the most stable. I hopped around from family member to family member, and I was the troubled child. So I didn't spend very long with each family member. And at the end of the time that they could take living with me, they would drop me off the airport with a flight attendant, and I'd watch them walk away as I was being shipped off to a new town and a new school with new people. When my biological mother was out of rehab in jail long enough to take care of me, things were a lot worse. We spent nights on the street, in and out of various shelters, and in and out of random men's houses. By the time I was 10, I had felt true hunger. I had been bullied by my peers because of the clothes I wore and for not having parents. And I had experienced every type of abuse that there is many, many times. But I remember the worst feeling that I have ever experienced is being left behind. One of the worst times was when I was six or seven. I had just moved to Juneau because my biological mom had met a man when she was in jail, and he was from here. But they were in a fight, so we moved into the Bergman Hotel, which I'm sure you guys have all seen in the newspaper the past couple of years. It wasn't a bad place to stay because my biological mom said it wasn't, and I trusted her. I actually kind of liked it. There were some girls down the hall that were my age, and we got to play together. One night, we were playing with some dolls, and I had heard my biological mom storm out of the room. She was very angry, and she was yelling at someone something about beer. But that had happened quite a lot, so I was used to it, and I ignored it. And then all of a sudden, someone was screaming at her, and there was a fight going on, and within minutes, the police were there. Now, I don't remember a lot from the rest of that night. I remember lights flashing and holding onto the railing in the Bergman with my face sticking through, bawling as they handcuffed my biological mom and took her away. I didn't know when she would be back, and she didn't tell the police that she had a kid, probably because she was too drunk to remember that she had me. I stayed with the kids down the hall for the next couple days until she came back, and when she did come back, she wasn't alone. She had her new probation officer with her. The probation officer explained to us that if an incident like this were to happen again, I would be a ward of the state. Fast forward three months, we're staying in the St. Vincent de Paul, but I had been by myself the past three days. My biological mom had gone somewhere I don't know where. I was living off of canned whipped cream and Pop-Tarts when I got a call on the communal phone, and it was my biological mother. There were loud sirens in the background, but I could still make out what she was saying. She was crying, and she was saying, baby, I'm so sorry. I'm not going to be back for a long, long time. So can you tell the people across the street to take care of you? The next time I saw her was in the Lemon Creek Correctional Center. It didn't take very long for the visits to stop or for me to start hating her. Very deep hatred. I wanted absolutely nothing to do with her. So soon after, she signed away her parental rights, and that was that. I lived with my second foster mom for about three years, the longest I had ever lived with anyone, anywhere, and I loved my foster mom. But she didn't love me, and she told me a lot. She told me, I don't love you, no one loves you, and no one will ever love you. So I told my counselor, yep, that's pretty much it. I had a horrible childhood. And she looked at me and she said, 
you know what, Tori? I'm really, really sorry that happened to you, but I don't think you had a completely bad childhood. And I looked at her dumbfounded because I had never been told that before. And she said, what about after that second foster mom? What about from the time 11 on? And I thought about it, and I smiled, and I said, you know, you're right. My social worker's daughter went to Montessori school. And so at one of those Montessori school events, she went up to Allison and Larry Talley. I'm sure some of you know them. And she said, you know, I heard you're looking to adopt a daughter. I have a child right here in town that could really use a home. So my parents went home and talked to their two adopted boys about it. And this was a big deal because they had wanted a younger girl. They wanted five years or younger, and I was 10. And also, my brothers would have to share a room if they got a daughter. And they were 8 and 13, so that was a big deal. But my brothers talked about it, and they decided they'd rather have a daughter or a sister. I'm sure sometimes they regret that now, but <laughs> they decided have a daughter. So give it a couple months and binders and binders full of paperwork later I moved in and um, I hated it. <laughs> I hated the Tally family and I wanted absolutely nothing to do with them because I knew what happened. I knew I would move in. I was the trouble child. They'd be over it and I'd move on to the new family soon. So a couple months into it my social worker came in and asked how it was going. And I told her, I said, I like the dog. No. I like Bubba. I don't really like anyone. Chris, my little brother, he's okay because he'll jump on the trampoline with me. But I do not like it. And I did everything I could to push my family away. I would scream and yell and throw tantrums and run away and do everything I could. And then on one really particularly bad night, I remember screaming at my mom and dad for hours. For hours and hours. And after I had finally calmed down, my mom and dad looked at each other, hopeless. And then my mom took a deep breath. And she wiped away her tears and she said, Tori, I know you're scared. I know you're scared this is going to end up like it has with every other family and every other home. But... We made a commitment to you. You're our daughter and we will love you. No matter how you feel, we aren't going anywhere. And a month later, I was adopted and this August I'll be celebrating 12 years as a tally. So my counselor said, so it wasn't all bad, was it? Something good came from it. And that's when I realized, and I said, when my biological mom signed away her parental rights, I was there, and it broke my heart because it was her leaving me behind and saying she didn't want me anymore. But it opened these doors and gave me the two most amazing, perfect, wonderful people in my life and gave me this beautiful life. And so now, instead of looking back on my past with sadness and anger, I look at it with gratitude, and I am so grateful to have been left behind because now I have, it's what's brought me here talking to you today with my two parents sitting out there. And you know what, I know when this is all over and we start to get ready to go and my parents are getting ready to walk home, 
they'll wait for me because they won't ever leave me behind. Thank you. Tonight, the sign will light up and say, Four mad men on This is KTOO News Juno at 104.3 FM. The stories you just heard were recorded live at Mudrooms on March 11, 2020. The theme for the evening was Left Behind. Proceeds went to Juno Alaska Music Matters. They provided the live music, which included fiddle tunes featuring Glacier Valley Jam students and the string band Super Bear. Special thanks to Laura Curt, Northern Light United Church, Copa, and the Rookery for supporting the event. The Lucid Reverie for hosting our website, mudrooms.org. And of course, to KTOO for bringing each Mudrooms to listeners like you. Mudrooms is a production of our storyboard. Alita Boss, Melissa Griffiths, Jeff Smith, David Noon, Kristen Rankin, Jim Fitzer, and me, Rich Moniak. Sadly, like all other social events in Juneau and throughout Alaska, we have canceled our final live show of the season that had been scheduled for April 21st. We know that listeners to this station prioritize being well-informed about important local, state, and national issues, and that throughout these uncertain times, people will continue to find ways to support our friends and neighbors throughout the community. And we want to close this program with how Robert Bowles described that special sense of Juno's community at the end of the Mudroom story he told last month. So I'd like to say that Juno has helped me to discover and in some cases rediscover things inside myself and in the world around me. A friend here in Juno once told me, if you have a talent, Juno will bring it out in you. And another one said, Juno is like a laboratory to teach you how to live. So if you are, have been here in Juno for a while, I hope you continue to do, discover new and unexpected things in your world. And if you're new to Juno, I hope you stay here long enough to discover unexpected things too. For me, after expecting to be here only three to five years after coming back, I unexpectedly find myself here 14 years later, very much in love with my adopted hometown of Juneau, Alaska. Thank you again for tuning into Mudrooms. This is KTOO. Good night.